This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Dragon Scroll by I.J. Parker. This is the first in a series of very original mysteries by Parker set during the late Heian period. The setting is very distinctive for a detective story, and as a result, it's not quite like anything else I've ever read. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 106, Facing Both Ways. This week, we're going to talk about one of those figures in Japanese history who I've given sadly short shrift to, and it really is about time we corrected that because her life is one of the most fascinating in Japanese history. The future Kato Shizue was born on March 2nd, 1897, to a family of affluent ex-samurai living in Tokyo. Her family name at that point was not Kato. She's had a couple family names throughout the course of her life, but for the sake of simplicity and to avoid confusion, I'm just going to call her Kato Shizue for the whole episode. Now, her family was wealthy and aristocratic, and young Kato Shizue lived a life of privilege. The family belonged to what was known as the Shizoku, descendants of former samurai. Kato's family was one of a very small number of samurai clans that had successfully made the jump from samurai to businessmen, and as a result, they were very well off. From a young age, Kato Shizue was trained and tutored in both traditional Japanese culture and modern Western ideas. During the Meiji era, this kind of education usually had one goal, enabling a young woman to become refined enough to attract a wealthy and high-ranking husband. I can't say for sure if that's what motivated her parents, but it's likely, and if so, it worked. In 1914, she graduated from a prestigious girls' school and married extremely well, to Ishimoto Keikichi. Ishimoto was from the Kazoku, the High Peerage, equivalent to the barons, the dukes, and such of the United Kingdom. Kazoku families came from one of two places. Either the old aristocracy of Kyoto descended from the nobility of 1,000 years ago, or the 250-odd families of daimyo, or feudal lords, who were bumped up to this new peerage to compensate them for the loss of their political authority when the samurai class was removed from power. These families, the Kazoku, ranked second only the imperial family in prestige, though to be sure it's a very distant second. By all accounts, early in their marriage, Kato Shizue got along well with her new husband and the pair lived a happy life. They had their first child in 1917 and another in 1918, both boys. His work, however, proved trying for them both. He moved the family to the Mike coal mines in Kyushu, and the living conditions there horrified them both. Child labor was common, men working the mines suffered constant health issues, and women continued to labor hard in the mines, even while extremely pregnant. 
Eventually, the stress of being implicated in this incredibly exploitative labor convinced Ishimoto that his family needed a change. He requested a transfer and moved the family to New York. Well, in New York, two things happened that would change Kato Shizue's life forever. First, she was exposed to increasingly radical ideas, like those of the burgeoning socialist movement. Her husband actually encouraged this. Ishimoto, unusually for a Japanese aristocrat, encouraged his wife to have her own life and even to do the unthinkable, get a job as a secretary so she could have her own income and cultivate her own group of friends. Ishimoto himself was also sympathetic to socialism, unusual but not unheard of for an aristocrat, so he encouraged his wife's increasingly radical politics. Second, in 1920, Kato Shizue met a person who would have a tremendous influence on her life, Margaret Sanger. Sanger, if you don't know, was an American radical best known for her advocacy of birth control. She'd actually briefly been forced to flee to the United Kingdom in 1914, when she was indicted on obscenity laws after distributing pamphlets about birth control. In the 1940s, she would go on to help found what is today the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. Sanger is still heralded today as one of the early founders of the birth control movement, and is actually the person who coined the phrase birth control, by the way. And while some people castigate her for her views on race and her support of eugenics, both of which are certainly abhorrent, as a man with a long-term girlfriend and as yet no children, I can't get down on her too much. Sanger's best known for her views on birth control, but her radical politics went well beyond that. She believed that birth control was part of a wide struggle for equality, for women in particular, and for social equity more generally. There was also an economic aspect to her thinking. Children were, and still are, expensive, and Sanger believed that allowing families to control the number they had would enable them to plan their economic lives better and raise their own standards of living. This message really resonated with Kato Shizue. She had been deeply scarred by the experience of seeing the cost of industry and wealth for the poor people whose labor made the whole thing possible. Now, the two women, interestingly enough, were actually introduced by Agnes Smedley, who is one of the most fascinating women I've ever seen. Smedley was a journalist and a political radical who joined the Socialist Party in 1912. Among her varied accomplishments, she worked with Indian nationalists for Indian independence during World War I, and actually became involved in a German plot to fund and support an armed insurrection for Indian independence, for which she narrowly avoided being arrested by the British, and eventually joined the Communist Internationale. Smedley would go on to be a sympathetic chronicler to the early rise of Chinese communism and wrote glowingly of early revolutionary figures in China like Zhu De, Zhou Enlai, and naturally Mao Zedong. She also re-entered Japanese history in 1941 as the lover of one Richard Sorge, the Soviet spy in East Asia who would eventually be the one to determine in 1941 that Japan was not planning to invade Russia but to strike south against the Allies. So pretty interesting life, all told. At this point, however, Agnes Smedley was not involved in international spying or in communist insurgencies, but was editing Sanger's journal, The Birth Control Review, which is how she made the introduction. Kato Shizue and her husband were eventually forced to return to Japan in 1921, but Kato would maintain a friendship with Sanger for the rest of the latter's life. In fact, Sanger's own will stated that her heart was to be removed cremated and buried in Japan, quote, 
to be buried in Tokyo, any place the government or health and welfare minister, together with Senator Kato Shizue, wish to have it buried, as it is or in ashes. End quote. The rest of her, if you're curious, by the way, is in Fishkill, New York. Once back in Japan, Kato Shizue used her influence, as well as that of her husband, to arrange for Sanger to come on tour to Japan in 1922, the first of six such tours to Japan that Sanger would make. On the first one, she visited Korea and Shanghai as well. Together, the two women advocated for greater access to birth control as a more humane alternative to the family planning methods already practiced in Japan. Infanticide has been common in Japan since the Edo period, at least, and Sanger and Kato really staked their position on the totally radical idea that, look, infanticide is pretty awful, but we can't force people to have kids they don't want, so isn't this really the best solution? In the 1920s, the women's rights movement was making broad strides, or at least seemed to be. Sanger and Kato were able to operate with little intervention, and women were granted increased political rights at the local level. A bill to give them the right to vote was even considered, though ultimately rejected, by the Diet in the 1920s. However, in the 1930s, the situation changed very rapidly. After 1932, the civilian government lost all real authority and the military came to dominate Japan. In this new climate, liberal ideas about women's suffrage were not going to get much purchase. Now, this was especially a problem for Kato Shizue. Other feminists could, and in fact did, work with the military, using housewives associations to promote patriotic themes, that kind of thing. Most figured that, hey, the military's in charge now, and this is how you get on their good side, and that way you'll at least be able to get something done. Kato didn't have that option, though, because for the military there was no way in hell birth control was going to fly. The military didn't need fewer kids, it needed more. Kids to either be conscripted and go garrison Japan's burgeoning overseas empire, or to serve as colonists for new acquisitions abroad and help stabilize Japan's claim on its new territory. What this meant in practice was that open support for birth control was absolutely not going to fly under any circumstances. The army shut down her work for the duration of the war. To make matters worse, her husband was actually assigned to work in Manchuria, the army government dealt with a lot of liberal-inclined people it couldn't just get rid of, like high-ranking aristocrats, by shipping them off to the colonies away from the center of power, with Manchuria being a favorite dumping ground for those with the wrong kind of sympathies. Ishimoto Keikichi would be sent to Manchuria in 1933, and he would not come home until the war ended. In the interim, he and his wife began to grow apart, nothing out of the ordinary for a 12-year separation, to be sure. However, they grew apart not only personally, but politically. Like many Japanese leftists in the 1930s, Ishimoto Keikichi actually eventually became a convert to right-wing imperialism. He came to believe the only way Japan could realize the kind of utopia he dreamed of was with the resources of a colonial empire, which would pave the way for a truly modern society. This was a pretty sharp break with his wife, who remained a committed pacifist. In the meantime, Shizue supported herself by working as both a writer and a lecturer. Eventually, the war took not only her husband, but her children as well. The eldest, Arata, was conscripted and sent off to fight. The youngest, Tamio, died of tuberculosis in 1943 due to medicine shortages that were cropping up as a result of the war. In the end, Kato Shizue, feeling the light had gone out of her marriage, 
asked for a divorce in 1944. Ishimoto actually didn't fight it, he accepted her wishes. However, because he was an aristocrat, the divorce required government approval. At this point, aristocratic marriages were carefully regulated by the central government. The two would remain on cordial terms until Ishimoto's death in 1944. So Kato got her divorce eventually, she got government approval, and in the same year, she remarried Kato Kanju, a socialist labor leader who somehow had managed not to get thrown in jail. I'm not really sure how. Now, the two had met on one of Shizui's speaking tours. Kanju was originally a nationalist, but had lost his ardor for the cause during the Siberian expedition. As a soldier on the ground fighting a losing battle against Russian Bolshevism, he lost his faith in Japan's national destiny, and instead became a pacifist and a labor leader. The two would have their first and only child, a daughter, in 1944, around the same time as the Tokyo firebombing. That daughter, Kato Taki, would go to school in Oregon before returning to Japan, working as a reporter, and eventually becoming a major leader of the NGO, or non-governmental organization, movement, as well as a political activist. The final few months of the war were, for them and everybody else, truly awful. Without the special protections afforded by her former husband's status and background, the couple had a hard time getting by on the same meager rations as everybody else. However, after the war, both Katos, Shizue and Kanju, saw their fortunes reverse dramatically. Once the Americans took over, socialists were no longer enemies of the state. The Americans not only let the ones who had been imprisoned out of jail, but encouraged socialists to go and work in government as a counterweight to the old militarists. Nor was this more true than in the first free post-war elections held in 1946. For the first time ever, socialists could run totally freely and openly, and both Shizue and Kanju decided to do it. They both ran for Japan's House of Representatives, the lower house. Both were elected in a landslide of popular enthusiasm for socialism. However, in 1949, their fates diverged. As the Cold War began to heat up, the socialists were allowed less freedom to campaign openly, and the economic issues of Japan resulted in popular backlash against socialist ideas. Kato Kanju was not able to hold on to his seat in the government. Kato Shizue, however, did. Not only that, but in 1950 she was elected to the House of Councillors, the upper house of the Japanese parliament. She would remain in that position with an unbroken string of victories until she retired officially from politics in 1974. Well in office, Kato followed a pretty singular set of political ideas. Like most socialists, she supported a general pro-labor principle. Like most Japanese socialists, she believed in neutrality, disarmament, and trying to make Japan into the Switzerland of East Asia and a non-participant in the Cold War. This is all pretty standard socialist stuff. However, she added to all of this a fierce belief in the importance of equal treatment for women, inherited from her early work and her experiences with Sanger. Women's liberation was, to her mind, key to the whole struggle for social equality, because once women had political liberties, they could become the decisive force to push society towards reform. During her time in the House of Representatives and the House of Counselors, she fought hard for access to birth control and helped author a law making abortion legal in some circumstances that went into effect in 1948. The law had wide support because, in dire economic straits, the country could ill afford a massive baby boom. 
Kato Shizue also continued to work for women's rights outside of her role in the Diet. After the International Planned Parenthood Foundation was established in the early 1950s, she helped establish its Japanese branch, the Family Planning Federation of Japan. Not all of her work was as successful. For example, she tried to pass a series of laws guaranteeing maternity leave and support for pregnant women in the labor force, but she was unable to convince her socialist colleagues to support the idea, nor could she sell it to the wider political scene. On top of all her political work, Kato Shizue was also a prolific author. In addition to translating a few Japanese-language books into English, she also authored over 20 books herself, the last few being co-authored with her daughter Taki. She was extremely prolific. Her first book, Facing Two Ways, was published in 1935 and described her journey from trophy wife in a gilded cage to career-oriented woman deeply involved in public life and the struggles she faced as part of that process. Her last books were published in 2002, 67 years later. Her written work covers broadly the same themes as her political career, the importance of women's rights, education for women, family planning, as well as the linked nature of social and political rights for women. She also wrote extensively about her own life and experiences, as a campaigner for women's rights, as a mother and a working mother at that, and as Japan's most prominent divorcee, at a time when divorce was still a pretty taboo subject, in both Japan and the rest of the world. There are a few outliers. For example, she authored at least one book on environmentalism in the 1970s, but by and large most of her work was on those topics. We also know that she at least met Beata Sirota, a young Austrian-American Jewish woman working in the occupation as a translator. Sirota, you might recall, was the one ultimately responsible for inserting Articles 14 and 24 into the final draft of the Constitution, protecting women's legal rights in their public lives and their relationship with their husbands in their private lives, enshrining them in the Constitution and enshrining their full legal equality in the Constitution so that no law could ever override them. I've heard stories to the effect that Sirota was encouraged to do this by Kato Shizue, who said the only way women's rights would really be secure on a legal front would be if they were genuinely immune from being amended or overridden by other laws. However, I don't really have any good sources for that, so I can't say for sure if it happened, though it does certainly sound like Kato Shizue. On the whole, Kato's work paid off in spades. It turned out that the original formulation about birth rates and average family wealth was absolutely correct. As families had fewer children, they had more money to focus on raising their standard of living, and so as the average birth rate plunged from 4.4 children per couple in 1947 to 2.1 in 1958, hovering around there until the 1980s, the prosperity of the average Japanese family increased as well. Kata was honored several times for her work on behalf of women's political rights and reproductive rights. Most notably, she was awarded the Order of the Precious Crown, second class, by the imperial family for her work on behalf of Japanese women. Ironically, the Order of the Precious Crown was at that time given almost exclusively to women because they were not eligible for Japan's most prestigious decoration, the Order of the Rising Sun, until 2003. So, even in being recognized for her hard work, technically Kato was still a victim of gender-based discrimination. To the credit of the government, though, they did eventually induct her into a separate mixed-gender award, the Grand Cordon of the Order of the Sacred Treasure, in 1975. 
In addition, Kato would receive a series of international awards throughout the course of her career, including the prestigious United Nations Populations Medal in 1988, given for her work on family planning and its relationship to sustainable population growth. Technically, Kato Shizue retired from politics officially in 1974. She gave up her seat in the House of Councillors starting in 1975 to spend more time with her ailing husband, Kato Kanju, who would eventually die three years later. In practice, however, she was far from uninvolved in politics during her quote-unquote retirement. She continued to be involved in and campaign for the Socialist Party, and to endorse socialist candidates, promote socialist platforms, and encourage socialist campaigning. She eventually left the Japan Socialist Party in 1979, but stayed involved in politics, working with Japan's other left-wing parties. And of course, throughout all of it, she continued to work for the Japan Family Planning Foundation in major leadership roles. She also picked up some new projects, including opening a women's school in 1993, called the School for Women in Politics, which is exactly what it sounds like, a girls' school aimed at training women to be political leaders in the future. She also served as its honorary headmistress. Eventually, Kato Shizue would begin to slow down, though in the meantime she found time to write yet another book about her experiences with aging in the process. She spent her final years with her daughter and grandchild before dying on December 22nd, 2001, at the ripe old age of 104, so a little less than 14 years ago. Though now gone, and admittedly not gone for very long, we should all be so lucky to live to be 104, Kato Shizue is not forgotten. The Japan Family Planning Foundation has given out a yearly award since 1996 in her honor, targeting, quote, women's groups, women's organizations, and individual women who are active in the movement for the improvement in the sexual and reproductive and health rights of women, and who encourage the empowerment of women in social, economic, political, and legal issues in developing countries and in Japan. Her work on both birth control and women's rights was tremendously important in a country where, a scant 70 years ago, women enjoyed almost no rights of their own. It would not be an exaggeration to say that Kato Shizue changed the lives of millions, and for that, she remains a beloved figure both in Japan and around the world. Special thanks this week to Hadi Salem, Ian Wills, and Joshua Vasquez for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the collapse of the Ashkaga Shogunate and the Onin War.